Hello, I'm Neil Aitchison and welcome to the Willow Warwick podcast. I'm joined by Professor Carol Rutter, who's Director of the Capital Centre, that's the Centre for Creativity and Performance in Teaching and Learning at Warwick. We're going to talk about her latest book about Shakespeare and children entitled Shakespeare and Child's Play, Performing Lost Boys on Stage and Screen. Carol, it's a rather uh, unusual uh, subject. Uh, why have you decided to uh, write a book about children and Shakespeare? My books start in the theatre. I go to the theatre, I see something on stage that intrigues me and it may percolate away at the back of my brain for many, many, many years before it kind of comes to the front or maybe there's enough of, of a connection uh, of um, uh, scenes that I've seen across many, many years and that's what happened in this book where I became aware that children were being used on stage in quite interesting ways. And I wanted to think about um, the original performance of children's parts on Shakespeare's stage and to think about the parts that he wrote specifically for children. Many of those parts, uh, of course, are lost to our own theatre because we don't have as many children working in the theatre. But then how it seems to me in about the last 15 years, directors have started re-engaging with ideas of childhood, perhaps reflecting our own culture's crisis in a notion of childness, uh, how we think about the child, where we put the child. Um, the abuse of the child still remains the ultimate taboo in our culture. Uh, and we use Shakespeare to think through those problems. So watching what directors have done by foregrounding children uh, was really the start of this book. The Lost Boys uh, of the title, um, really it's, it's a, it speaks in two directions. Lost because most of the children in Shakespeare's plays do get lost. They're either wasted, they die, they disappear. Uh, and lost because those parts have been lost to the theatre. And this book is a way of marking how they come back, how they re-emerge. And how important is children, do you think, uh, are children rather, to uh, Shakespeare? Uh, mm. I mean, you were sort of, uh, if I sort of thought of Shakespeare, I would struggle to think of uh, child parts, <laughs> I must admit. But, uh, I mean, you say in the book were about, about 50 plays yes. or so. Yes, and I know, that, I know that I've undercounted. I've counted 55, and they keep showing up because be, the, the quality of their having been lost means that we don't see them any longer. They, they, they surface in places where we just don't imagine that they're going to be there. Um, uh, so 55 to begin with, and I know that that's an undercount. But Shakespeare's, if we, if we think about the way Shakespeare's theatre was organised, uh, he was working, he was writing for an all-male theatre. So all of the parts on that stage were performed by men, adolescents, and children. Uh, and, you know, we've known, or people have talked about for a long time the way the the, uh, the parts for uh, the women's roles uh, were played by uh, young men. Uh, frequently they're described, they're, they're described as being parts for boys. That's actually inaccurate. Those parts were written for adolescents, late adolescents, probably you know, young men who were 19, 20, 21, 20, uh, up until about the age of 25. But he was also writing for a, a theatre structure that tried to mimic the practices of the legitimate trade guilds in order to enhance their own reputation, in order to legitimate this new theater industry, this new organ of culture that was brand new uh, in the late seven, uh, 1570s into uh, the 18, uh, 1580s through till the end of Shakespeare's lifetime in 1616. Um, imitating the guild structure, the uh, theaters 
had um, what what we would think of as in another in another guild uh, their um, their practitioners. So there were sharers in the company. There were the men who shared the costs and ran the business of the theater and had the main acting responsibilities. Then there were journeymen, men who were who were paid for it at uh, day wages. But then all of those sharers and many of those journeymen, again mimicking the practices of the guilds, would have had apprentices. And the apprentices, the boys, could have been beginning at age seven, working up through the the uh, culmination of uh, an, an apprenticeship was the age 25. That's what the statute of artificers uh, regulated. So you could have boys in the theater from the age of seven on upwards. Now, Mamilius in The Winter's Tale is a boy in the story who's seven. Um, Hamlet, remembering himself a child, remembers him a lad of seven. In the theater then, Shakespeare would have needed to have started writing parts for those apprentices that took them from right from the beginning of their first in involvement with the stage and the theater all the way up through the point at which they were taking on major um, uh, acting roles. So we have parts on the stage that were written for mutes, just boys standing around being pages. Uh, any nobleman would have would have come equipped not with just a sword and a rapier and a hat, but with a page. Uh, they would have been mute parts. Right the way up through, you know, the first speaking parts, playing young servants, then from growing those to having having more important uh, parts like uh, Mamilius or Rutland. Um, or Fleance in, uh, in Macbeth, through to the point where they were going to graduate to men's roles and to the women's roles that would have tested uh, their experience even further. So he was writing for a company and needed to sustain the ambitions and the uh, organization structure of that company. And you talk about in the book about a dual uh, project uh, to, uh, and I'm just sort of referring to a, a little bit uh, to the book here about this dual project of exploring this uh, theme of children. You describe the dual project uh, as um, looking at our own culture's performances of, uh, of childhood and putting our conflicted responses to the issue of, uh, of the child squarely in view. It's, uh, I just wanted to explore that a little bit, just to describe your sort of dual yes, project that you've got in this. this yeah, book. because Shakespeare is a playwright that we consider to be a contemporary of ours, that we use these plays to think about how we think about things, yes? Um, and I was, I was in, in, inside these, these plays, um, one of the things that Shakespeare writes for the young children are a whole series of apprenticeship roles. So he writes the apprentice soldier, he writes the apprentice scholar, the schoolboy. Um, he writes the child who, in his own culture, is thought of as the medicinal child, the child who cures adults uh, of the, in the, 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 uh, the line of the play, of thoughts that would thick my blood. That is, he cures the adults of things that are going wrong. And it seems to me that uh, thinking about how uh, the theatre has re-performed those roles of apprenticeships. Um, those are pressure points. We still worry about the uh, about the schoolboy and what the schoolboy is learning, how the schoolboy is or is not learning emotional literacy. We worry about the child soldiers of Rwanda. Um, we worry about how we in script or recruit children to us to try to save our culture from the disasters that we see afflicting us. Um, 
those are parts that Shakespeare wrote. Um, the 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 schoolboy in Titus Andronicus, uh, the soldier, Fleance's, uh, uh, the the boy in Macbeth, uh, Mamilius in The Winter's Tale, and watching how those three. Uh, plays have been performed recently, uh, let's say specifically uh, 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 Max Stafford Clark's uh, Macbeth, where he used child soldiers to play the parts of, of the kind of the subordinate thugs uh, in, uh, in his African set uh, Macbeth, uh, where those kids were toting uh, Kalashnikovs, where the, the kids were the ones who were herding the audience through this performance space, aligning them up, making them pay to see the show, taking them through into, into a darkened room to see a horror, uh, and uh, 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 turning the, the, the play into a way of interrogating um, how it is that we think about the way children are used, the way children are mobilized, uh, the way children are thought of uh, in our culture, but in the culture of these plays. And that's uh, how you describe it as, uh, and again, to sort of quote very quickly, it's about how we as consumers position the child uh, to play our, our preoccupations, our anxieties, our fears. Uh, again, that's a, a, an element of that yes, part and, of it. Yes, and also because, of course, I'm, I'm constantly... Uh, interested in both the early modern play and the play that's being performed on our stage today. So I'm trying to understand the child's part in Shakespeare's culture. Um, the child's part, like the woman's part, is what anthropologists call a muted role because they don't leave any evidence behind. There's nothing really of childhood that remains against except adult versions of childhood. So listening to the children, uh, and I know that, we're, that, that the children in these plays are ventriloquizing an adult voice because it's Shakespeare who's writing the part, but still the play teases you with a kind of simulation of childhood because the child is speaking directly to you in the theater. So the early modern theater in some way has a trace element remaining in these parts that let us let us hear the voice of the child coming across 400 years. But I'm as, I, as interested in what these plays, what cultural work these plays are doing today. And the way we imagine the child, the way we dress the child, the way we put the place the child on stage, the way we listen to the child or marginalize the child. And I think Mamilius is, a, is an excellent idea. Uh, Mamilius is, is, a, is a child, uh, the beloved child of uh, Leontes and Hermione. Hermione is expecting another baby. This is the kind of fruition of, of this loving affair between the king and queen of, of uh, Sicilia. And yet something goes desperately wrong. Uh, he is massively infected with a terrible disease of the brain and supposes, looking at his wife, that the child that she's carrying is a bastard. He looks at her body and then immediately looks at the face of his little boy, Mamilius, to try to scan the face, to try to detect paternity in the face. And as, as he's using that child to examine the thing that is that is going wrong in his own brain, he positions the child in a kind of appalling pornographic fantasy where the child looks at the father and can only say, they say, I am like you. 
That's his only response to this appalling thing that's happening to him. Now, how we deal with that, how our own children understand the demons that we as adults are, are, uh, uh, are dealing with, uh, the way we see ourselves, um, uh, with 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 terrible you know um, nightmares uh, that the child has somehow inflicted upon him. That's a child who dies, who disappears. But the baby, the Hermione's baby, um, uh, comes back, uh, returns, returns memory, returns story, returns uh, sometimes some kind of graciousness to that kingdom. Most of the time, of course, we don't get a second chance in Shakespeare because this happens to be a comedy. Those those parents do get a second chance. And is that a general depiction of childhood then that we see in Shakespeare? This. Uh, it's two-edgedness to it that uh, it's childhood reflecting adulthood but but also you seem to suggest uh, something of hopefulness and forlornness as well that yeah absolutely because there is a the Elizabethans had had like we do a very conflicted attitude toward the child towards the child is the child innocent or is the child depraved is the child the inheritor of Adam is he, is he also contaminated with original sin? Does he arrive in the world sinful and needing the offending Adam beaten out of him? Or does he come into the world innocent and pure and uncontaminated? Is it the process of living in the world that ruins him? Now, that's a culture that looks at the child just as we do. Sometimes we look at children and we see little angels. Sometimes we look at children and we see beasts. Um, uh, our, 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 our culture, our, our English culture, I think hit a big big wall, a wall of, of panic, of, of almost incredulity uh, when James Bulger was taken away as a two-year-old and, and killed by two little boys who were eight and nine years old. What do we do about a childhood that is, seems to us to be capable of, of depravity? Well, there was part of, of our response to that that said that they were wicked, that they were evil, that they were the, de the devil incarnate. Or do we reverse that and say, no, these were children themselves who were damaged by adults. Now, that's, I think that's the thing that we play a part a, a, across a, a, a lot of the time and where it is that Shakespeare helps us structure those debates because those are, the, those are debates that the play itself is 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 dealing with is is arguing is thinking about that comes out of uh, their own religious um, attitude towards the child that comes out of Calvinism uh, that says that we are born depraved we only achieve grace by the grace of God on another part of us that imagines that we come into the world and for a, a limited time there's this precious moment of innocence uh, and that the child remembers for us adults our own innocence, which is why we treasure him so much. So there are some people in Shakespeare who are cuffing children, you know, getting rid of them, thinking about children as expendables, as dirty little filthy beasts. There are other people in Shakespeare who are treasuring children, prizing children, thinking of, chil of, of children as, as the most precious thing uh, in life. Uh, you talked about there about uh, the 
child or childhood being the the antidote to uh, to adulthood i mean that that's one of the sort of main themes that we uh, see throughout uh, Shakespeare's uh, writing. Well, it certainly is in The Winter's Tale uh, when one father says to another father, you know, is your son as precious to you as Mars is? is, is uh, and Polixenes, uh, his brother king, says, you know, when I'm at home, my boy is all my mirth, my matter. He's my politician. He's my best friend. Then he's my enemy. He makes a July's day short as December. So the time just passes when I'm with his child. Uh, and he's the one who cures in me thoughts that would thick my blood. Um, the antidote to adulthood is perhaps remembering yourself as a child and watching your child as a way of remembering yourself through that other body. Uh, so yes, it works. The child does work as an antidote or it works as a medicine to restore uh, your own your own loss and even if you're you know even as a as, as a as as an adult you are aware in your own time what it is that you have lost looking at your child somehow restores that loss uh, but in other plays uh, in for example Titus Andronicus uh, the child there uh, has duties imposed upon him. Uh, he's a schoolboy. Uh, he brings into the play the books that he's been studying, his Ovid, and his Ovid uh, is the trigger, that material object uh, is the trigger to understanding what has happened to his, his, his family, the mutilation of his Aunt Lavinia. The book falls over, open, and she with her mutilated uh, arms um, paws the book until it arrives at the story of Philomela, uh, the adult men then understand that she is pointing to a story that unpacks the story of her own abuse. The child then, who's carrying these schoolboys, because the text of Ovid is a schoolboy's text, um, he then becomes a watcher at the end of the play, uh, the watcher of atrocity, the watcher of revenge, the watcher of everything that his family does to try to right the wrongs that have been committed upon them. And when everybody is dead and they drop one right after the other, you know, eight deaths serially in a minute at the end of that play, when the dead are laid out, uh, the father of the little boy calls him forward and requires the boy to learn of us. He says, learn of us. Uh, and you ask the question, what is the boy to learn? And what he's to learn is to melt in showers. That is, the boy is to learn to weep. And as he learns to weep, he is also being asked to remember, to remember the story and to tell the story onward. So in some ways, that play at the end is suggesting to the child that he has a job to do as he comes into adulthood. One is to remember and tell the story, but the other is somehow to be fully human by experiencing emotion, experiencing tears, experiencing the transformation that happens to you when you melt in showers. Uh, and thinking about that, you understand that the, the, the duty of the child there is to lose himself. And that's very hard learning. I think the plays, across the plays, give children very hard learning to take on board. Uh, you mentioned Macbeth, and perhaps that's another extreme. Absolutely, uh, yes. Uh, that uh, you devote uh, a chapter to uh, Macbeth and, and children and talk there about the the murder of, of childhood uh, and Macbeth mm -hmm. representing that. But, uh, Talk, uh, talk us through uh, that sort of aspect of it then. <laughs> uh... 
Macbeth wants to be king. And Macbeth is in a play in which he is surrounded by men, all of whom have boy children. Macbeth has no children. When Macbeth responds to uh, uh, the information that he's given uh, and decides to hurry along time uh, to become king by his own means, that is by killing Duncan, what he rapidly discovers is that there is no success, a big word in his mental framework, there is no success without succession. That he, killing Duncan, becoming king, has put the crown unlinearly into his own hand. He has no heirs succeeding. He has no children. What does he do with the crown? And as he reflects upon this, he discovers that he has sold his soul, his eternal jewel, into the common enemy of man. That is, he's given his soul to the devil for nothing. So what does he do? What does he do to try to stop the future that he both wants and he doesn't want? He wants the future that the witches, the weird sisters, have somehow promised him that he will be king, but he doesn't want the future that they've also promised to Banquo's sons, that they will be kings hereafter. So how do you become king and then stop the future that is Banquo's future for his uh, 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 children? And his answer to that is to start killing children to lay waste to the entire kingdoms, the kingdom of Scotland's children, by killing them one by one by one. So ambushing Banquo, killing Banquo, trying to kill Banquo in that same ambush. He doesn't succeed. Fleance flees. Uh, but then one of his, uh, his, his other supposedly uh, supporters, Macduff, uh, Macduff goes to Scotland to try to get Duncan's son to come back to lead uh, the, uh, the return of the rightful ruler to Scotland to get that young man, who himself is barely less than a boy, to come back to Scotland. But in doing that, Macduff leaves his own family exposed. I think because it has never occurred to Macduff that anybody would kill a child. Ha, well, Macbeth's thugs on his orders do go to Macduff's castle and they kill all of his family. Uh, Macduff, when he's informed of this, is just dumb, just dumb with the pain and then thinks, utters, what, all my chickens, all my pretty chickens and their dam in one swell, in one fell swoop, oh, hellkite. And then he has that line, he has no children. He doesn't understand what it means to kill a ch child. How can you understand what it means to kill a child if you have no children? And it's that sense of revulsion, of the killing of the child, the ending of the seeds of time, uh, that really, really, I think, is so poignant at the center of that play. Uh, the idea of a land that has no children uh, and what that means. Now, in when Max Stafford Clark uh, did this very recently, of course, he connected that idea of a of a nation that has no children uh, to Africa, to uh, to Rwanda, to uh, Uganda, uh, and looked at those places where children have been inscripted, conscripted to play their part in that war, and how that means the death of childhood, and what the legacy to the world is going to be of those children who have had no childhood. And it's a kind of void, really. That's, Absolutely. Uh, the blackest of all black voids, mm. a terrible void. Turning then to a sort of very final theme, I mean, what do you hope is the uh, the result of the, of the book, that it kind of flags up this 
this forgotten element of Shakespeare, do you hope? Yes, and that, you know, as I as I think about it, the way the way what I have been, you know, learning about, for example, the whole process of Elizabethan education and the way the Elizabethans had a program for boys learning emotional literacy, for example, that a very simple, simple way of doing it. It was called role play. Uh, it's something that we are trying or have been trying for the last 20 years to uh, to rethink in terms of our own school's curriculums. Um, boys needed to learn how to become men and to become to learn how to become a man you needed to learn particular kinds of codes yeah you needed to learn how to do certain kinds of writing uh, how to argue how to debate how to think in a logical format format but also the Elizabethans understood that to be fully human you needed to understand emotion so one of the school exercises uh, that boys were given was something called ethopoia uh, which was the, the writing or the making of a character. And in this exercise, frequently what boys had to do was to take, let's say, one of the letters of the Heroides, that's Ovid. Uh, these were the letters of the female heroines. Uh, they were letters, say, for example, Ariadne, uh, when she'd been abandoned on Naxos uh, uh, by Theseus. She writes a letter to Theseus, uh, a miserable letter that says, please come back and get me. Why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me here? What's going to happen to me? I'll be eaten by the animals. Now, a boy would be given this assignment to memorize uh, this letter of, of Ariadne's, to memorize it and to incorporate that. And they meant that very literally, to make it a part of your body, uh, to make it written on your heart. And as it was written on your heart, then you would be able to call it up. Okay. So that was the first bit, to memorize the, the, the letter. And then you were asked then to, to, to perform it, to play it. And by internalizing the argument of Ariadne, you understood what it meant to be abandoned. You understood betrayal. In the story of Philomela, if you were given the part of Philomela to learn, you understood from her point of view what it meant to be raped to have your tongue taken out so that you couldn't tell the story. You had to take on the role of the woman. Now, it would seem to me that once a boy has taken on and played the part of the woman, then he has a different kind of understanding about these womanish things called emotions, which as a man, as a grown-up, he's going to have to compartmentalize. He's going to have to put elsewhere, but he's always going to have them as part of his body, as part of his muscle memory, as part of his literacy for dealing in the world. And maybe if boys and girls in our own school's curriculum played those parts and took them on board, then maybe they would understand something more about the idea of sympathy, of, of playing a part, which, as theatre does, you know, theatre gives you the opportunity to play a part um, in a performance, which maybe by playing it just in performance means that you'll never have to, have to act it out for real. Maybe it's a way of doing things in a kind of practice session or a laboratory space, which means that you can avoid those appalling disasters in real lives. So you're hoping we might extend our understanding of Shakespeare at least a, a little bit by kind of finding these ch lost childhood parts Absolutely. again? Absolutely. 
and watching, watching how, watching that space they occupy and what those little bodies are doing on stage. Well, you know, while the, while the grown-ups have most, most of the conversation, you know, you're watching the children play and watching those children at play, I think, is a way of, of, of understanding the work that the, that the adults are supposed to be doing when they too are playing. Carlotta, thanks very much. 